The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 5, 5 to 9. Jesus is in Jerusalem at a pool called Bethesda. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find these verses on pages 74 and 75 in the New Testament. Please hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 5, verse 5 to 9. Now a certain man was there who had been infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him laying there, and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, but while I am coming, another step down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as a people whom you have called to yourself. A people who gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and who gather to to proclaim your praise and to lift high uh, your truth, to declare your glory uh, here where you have planted us in Stillwater, Minnesota, and in the surrounding area. Father, our our prayer, the, the heart of our prayer is always that your name would be hallowed among us, Lord, that your kingdom truly would come and that we would see your will being done perfectly on earth as it's done in heaven. Lord, we long for the day of the return of our King, that day of righteousness and glory, that day of salvation and wrath. Lord, and and however that day will come to pass in its particulars, we unite in a common hope that we trust that, Lord Jesus, you have not forsaken us And you will not leave us as orphans. You will come and you will receive us to yourself so that where you are, there we may be also. And Lord, we we gather together as one people united around that common hope. And uh, we sit under your word in light of that hope. We come to fellowship with you and with one another at your table in light of that hope today. And Lord, we pray that you would renew in us uh, a living a sense of the living hope that we have uh, as those who have been born again through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, We do not have a dead hope in you, Lord. We have a living hope even as we serve a living God. So as our living God, we pray that you would come and be with us or that you would minister your word to our hearts with your living and life-giving power, that your grace would be at work and be present and be effectual in every heart of every person in this room. Lord, may we praise and worship you as the living God and confess our faith in you anew today. And we ask that you'd be with us and make your presence known by your Holy Spirit through your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, uh, we are getting back into the Gospel of John. Um, I appreciated uh, Grant's uh, walk through another Mark and Sandwich the last couple of weeks. I hope you guys 
uh, took much away from that in regard to fruitless discipleship and uh, the dangers of that and what Christ calls us to as his children. Today we are coming back to John chapter 5, which we began to look at uh, three weeks ago. And uh, we are uh, jumping right back into it this morning in the first part of this chapter where we have the account of Jesus healing a man at a pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda. Now, does anybody remember what that word Bethesda means? Beth and Esda. Two different Hebrew words put together in, into one word. Does anyone remember what that means? You weren't expecting a pop quiz this morning. House of outpouring or house of mercy. That's what the pool of Bethesda, that's what Bethesda means. So as Jesus is ministering to this man seated around this pool, this man is is around in this area that is called house of outpouring. And John chapter 5 tells us probably why this pool was called house of outpouring. It's because the Lord used to pour out a blessing for some providentially blessed sinner and sufferer that was sitting around that pool by an angel stirring the waters. And as soon as that sick person could get into that water, he or she would be healed. House of outpouring. Now this scene here with this man um, really becomes a springboard to uh, one of the most glorious revelations about the person and the nature of Christ that we have anywhere in the scriptures. John chapter 5 is a towering declaration of who Jesus is. More specifically, who Jesus is in relation to the Father. Does anyone struggle to understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Just put your hand up. Everybody, right? It It is an incomparably glorious truth of one being that is God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's a wonderful truth. We see that truth being fleshed out and dealt with uh, very explicitly here in John chapter 5. And we'll see that in the weeks that are coming. What happens in John 5 is, is we have the curtains of creation being pulled back and we're being given a glimpse into the very heart of the eternal relationship that has existed between the Father and the Son. And it's this healing at the pool of Bethesda that launches us into that discussion. The fact that this healing took place on the Sabbath. Now my intention this morning was to focus uh, on the specific application that Jesus makes to the man whom he healed. You know that this act of grace from the hand of Christ came with expectations and it came with a demand upon this man. What was that demand? It was in the old title, so the title that's on your sermon notes page, and in the bulletin. The demand that this healing from Jesus' hand makes upon this man is holiness. Holiness. God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. God's grace is free, but it'll cost you everything. What we're going to find with this man in what we were hoping to find today, but what we're going to now find next week, 
is that when Christ poured out this blessing upon him, it came with the calling and the command and the charge for this man to devote himself with thankfulness to a life of holiness and fellowship with God. Now, that was my intention to get at that this morning. However, as I was working through this text this past week, there were a couple of things I noticed about the character of our Lord Jesus Christ that seemed helpful to take note of. You know, often uh, some of the most impactful truths about Christ are the details, or at least are contained in the details that are often just passed over. Uh, maybe even uh, the details that go unnoticed and, or are underappreciated. Uh, well, as I was working in this text, there were a couple of truths that I saw about Christ that just leapt off the page in my heart and mind, and things that I hadn't really noticed and paid attention to before. And so today, what I wanted to do is look at some of these ways where Christ reveals the glory of his character to us in this interaction with this man at the pool of Bethesda. So rather than skipping over them or simply mentioning them in passing, I thought it would be helpful and encouraging for us if we slow down and take a look at these, these uh, characteristics of Christ uh, together. So the title for today is not Healings and Holiness. That'll be next week. The title for today is Jesus, a Helper for the Needy. Jesus, a Helper for the Needy. Now, there are two main points that we're going to look at in relation to that. The first point is uh, that Jesus saw this man and Jesus knew his condition, his grace, his help, his mercy. Point number one, Jesus saw this man and Jesus knew his condition. Isn't that a wonderful truth? This man was not a stranger to Christ when Christ stumbled upon him at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus knew him and Jesus saw him. Verse 3 tells us that at this pool and at that time, at that time there was around this pool of Bethesda a multitude of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. That word multitude in Greek, it's just the word for many. So it's communicating to us this idea of a large number of people who are seated around this pool, this complex. You remember how big this complex was. I mentioned it last week. This, this pool of Bethesda was the size of a football field and actually had two pools as part of this complex, each of them being 20 feet deep. So we're talking about a lot of water. We're talking about a lot of space. There were five porticos. That is, there were five covered porches surrounding this pool complex. And there were a lot of paralyzed, sick, and lame people strewn all throughout this area. So we come away with an understanding that more than likely, there were a few hundred people sitting here at this pool waiting for a blessing from God and the stirring of the waters. Now, verse 5 narrows the focus of this story down to one man. So our attention in verse 5 begins to be drawn away from the large crowd and the multitude of people around this pool down to this one man, this certain man, who was lying next to the pool among this multitude. 
This man, we're told, had been suffering from an infirmity for 38 years. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how long he had been at the pool. But we know that for 38 years of his life, which was more than likely the majority of his life, he had been suffering from what is called an infirmity. Now, I don't often use that word. I had to look up what exactly that word's talking about. Uh, that word is talking about a debilitating disease that left this man incapacitated. So there was something, there was some kind of disease that this man had, had contracted, something that, that had infected his body and caused him basically to be paralyzed. Here this man is laying next to this uh, pool of Bethesda along with possibly hundreds of other sick and infirm people. And the significance, I believe, that we're supposed to pick up from the language that John uses here is communicated to us in this contrast. Here we have this large number of people in verse 3 sitting around that pool, and yet Jesus chooses to focus on just one man. That's a contrast, and we're supposed to pick up something from that. Verse 6 describes the attention that Jesus gave to this man in two ways. Number one, it says that, he, uh, that among the multitude of this people, he saw this one man, and secondly, he knew this man. Now, obviously, we're not to think that Jesus didn't see everyone else that was sitting around the pool of Bethesda. Obviously, he saw them. Nor are we to think that Jesus didn't know these other people sitting around the pool of Bethesda. He knew their condition. He knew who they were. But what it does mean is that amid this crowd, Jesus' attention was focused on this specific man in a unique and in a special way. There's, there's a grace of Jesus that's being manifest here that was not common to everyone. It was a particular grace that Jesus was beginning to give to one certain man among the multitude. Now, I don't want to belabor this point. I can do that. I don't want to do that today. But I definitely don't want to miss the glory of what is being revealed to us here in that simple statement that among the multitude, Jesus saw and he knew this one specific man. You have this crowd here in John 5, this multitude there, but Jesus is not focused on the crowd. In fact, verse 13 tells us that Jesus is going to purposefully withdraw himself from this crowd. He's going to hide himself away from them so that they can't see him anymore. Jesus is not about the crowd in John chapter 5. Jesus is about one man, one individual. And Jesus approaches this man and deals with this man individually. Jesus is not into crowds, if you haven't gotten the memo through reading the Gospels. Very often when there's a crowd, Jesus turns to them and basically accuses them of being false believers and tries his best to get them to go away. Right? He wasn't into the, uh, the, the church growth movement. That, that wasn't Jesus, right? 
As it's been said before, Jesus was into the church shrinkage movement. He was weeding out false believers. He was weeding out false faith. And he just wanted the group that was truly genuine and devoted to him. And we see in the book of Acts what Jesus can do with just 120 people, right? He turned the whole world upside down. How many people do you think are in this room? Maybe 120? You believe that Jesus could, by His almighty power, if we were genuinely directed and devoted towards Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, do you think if we were truly devoting ourselves with genuineness to Christ and to living a godly life for His glory, what do you think He could do through us? Jesus doesn't need the crowd. He doesn't need Big Eva. He doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the power. He doesn't need the influence. He doesn't need the presidency in order to make his name exalted in the earth. Jesus just needs to wield his power and exercise his authority and dominion through his people. And he turns the world upside down. That's a parenthesis. Jesus is not into crowds. Jesus is actually into individuals. And we see that over and over again through the gospel accounts. Jesus is constantly seeking to avoid the crowds and the multitude. And even in the midst of the crowds, we often find him zeroing his focus and attention upon just one individual. Who is it that just touched me? Are you kidding, Lord? There's a whole multitude of people pressing in on you and you're going to ask us who just touched you. You hear the mockery in the disciples' response. Jesus recognized a peculiar touch from one specific individual and turned around and focused on her. Jesus knows people as individuals and he engages with people individually. Now, I know in John chapter 5 that the specific context of Jesus seeing and knowing this man is in relation to a physical healing that he is about to perform. I know that. I don't want you to feel like I'm starting to allegorize or go off base here, okay? But doesn't this whole scene of Jesus approaching this sick, helpless invalid with the power of his grace, doesn't this whole scene picture for us and illustrate how Jesus pursues and engages us spiritually? We didn't seek Jesus. Jesus sought us. We couldn't get into the pool and heal ourselves. Jesus had to come to us. He had to come heal us. Jesus is the initiator, right? Beloved, you need to be encouraged and take to heart the fact that in relation to Christ's attention and intimate knowledge of you, even though you may be like me and very often feel yourself lost among the masses of the people of this world and some nameless, insignificant face just drifting through life on earth, struggling to somehow get God to pay attention to you. Anyone else like that? That's me. If you didn't know this already about me, that's me. I am the Elijah in the wilderness saying, Lord, I'm the only one left. Where is everybody? 
Jesus says, son, shut up. I've got my, I've got my remnant. Very often I struggle to feel that I have somehow escaped the notice and the attention of the Christ in whom I hope. I'm often pleading with him and feeling as if I have to try to get him to look at me, right? Like that, that Fanny Crosby song, pass, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. When others thou art calling, don't pass me by. Very often we're prone to think that Jesus is more compassionate and more gracious and pays more attention to other people than he does us as individuals. Well, beloved brother and sister, believer in Christ, you must always remember that your Lord Jesus Christ as one, as, as one whom he has engaged with his healing and saving grace, you have never been some nameless face to him. You have never been some obscure, general, lost person to him. He has known you from before the foundation of the world. Right? This is, this is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 where Paul, writing to the church, tells them, you are not some nameless, faceless, general group of people that God is just happy chose to accept him. God is just clapping and applauding you all because you chose to choose him. Praise God. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, praise God. That he chose you from before the foundation of the world. A lot of people stumble over the doctrine of election and think that somehow that means God's not just. But you've got to get into your mind why God is revealing to us the doctrine of election. It's not so that we would debate and argue about whether God's truly good or truly loving or whether his offer of salvation to the whole world is genuine. That's not why God reveals that doctrine to us. He reveals that doctrine to us so that we come to know that no matter what we were before we were saved, God fully knew what we were and he chose to save us regardless. We are the sick man. We are lying by the pool in our sickness and our depravity. And God fully was aware of all that was wrong with us when he came to save us in his son. You know, I love this statement. I know I can, I can get loud and yelling. I'm sorry. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I just don't, I don't like how it rings in your ears. I sat under someone a couple weeks ago that was doing that, and I was like, huh, this must be what the people at Oak Ridge feel like. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what we need, a dampener or something better? I don't know what it is. I'm not, a, I'm not that kind of guy. But, you know, I've always been struck with fascination by a certain phrase in Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10 tells us that when the servant of Yahweh was, was in the climax of his suffering, that when he was pouring his life 
out unto death and, and giving his soul up as a guilt offering on behalf of his people. It says in Isaiah 53.10 that in the same way, very, very similar to the way that Jesus saw this man lying by the pool of Bethesda, in a very similar way, Jesus, it says here, Jesus saw his offspring. Meaning, in the climax of his suffering, Jesus saw those for whom he was suffering. He knew them. He, he, he acknowledged them. His attention was focused upon them. Right? So, so, in other words, when Jesus was suffering on the cross, he was not suffering for some general, nameless, undefined group of people who might someday come to choose to accept him. That's not what happened on the cross. Jesus was thinking of you when he hung on that cross. He looked forward. He, in the midst of his suffering, he saw his offspring. In other, you should think spiritual birth there. He saw those who would be birthed to new life with God through his sufferings on their behalf. He saw you. And he knew you. Even on the cross. Isn't that comforting? If in the height of his suffering for you, he knew you and saw you, do you somehow think that in the height of your suffering for him, he won't see you and know you? From before the foundation of the world, God has known his people. From, from the, the climax, or I should say the depth of his sufferings on behalf of his people, he has seen his people specifically. And amid the mass of wrecked sinners, lying in the ruin of our fall in Adam, Jesus comes. Having suffered in our place, having died on our behalf, and having been raised again from the dead, proving his victory. Jesus Christ comes and looks at each one of us individually and declares Isaiah 43.1 over us. He says, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Remember when the Lord spoke those words to your soul? Do you? For some of you, bless God, it's been a long time. For me, it's been this September 14th, it'll be 20 years since the Lord called me to himself and declared over me, you no longer belong to you. I've redeemed you. You're mine now. And I still remember the power and the glory and the joy that was in that moment of knowing that the Lord had not passed me by. The Lord had not forgotten me. He had not abandoned me. He came to redeem me. He came to get me, to bring me to himself. So it is with each and every one of you in here who is a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has owned you and he knows you. I said I wouldn't belabor this point. You know, from the first moment that Jesus began ministering his saving grace to your soul, he saw you as his beloved. And he came to engage with you as an individual 
whom he was choosing to save. I love how John 10 verse 3 puts this. Right, this, we'll move on from this point after this, but listen to how John 10.3 says it. Jesus says to him, to, to, to the sheep or the, the shepherd, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And what does he say next? What does he do? He calls his own sheep by name and what do they do? Well, he leads them out. They follow him, right? Yeah. When Jesus comes to save a sinner, he describes it as a shepherd coming to call a sheep. And he's not calling the general mass of, of sheep gathered together at, at some watering hole of sin and depravity. He comes to each sheep individually and declares over them, well, it calls them by name. When Jesus saved you, he came to you personally and individually and purposefully to call you to himself by name. That ought to give you great comfort, great assurance of the Lord's love and devotion to your salvation. Now, I won't go on to Galatians 1.15, but you know, Paul says that the Lord knew him so... Actually, I guess I will. Galatians 1.15... <laughs> Paul says that the Lord knew him so perfectly and so intimately that from his mother's womb, the Lord had set him apart. So in other words, from the point of conception, God knew Paul intimately and had set him apart for the sake of salvation. It's the same with each and every child of the Lord. From the point of conception, Jesus Christ has had his eye upon you. Even until that day when he approached you by that pool and asked if you wanted to be healed. So, even in the depths of your spiritual impoverishment and helplessness, like what is pictured with this man at Bethesda, Jesus saw you, beloved, and he knew you and he drew near to you with the purpose of being your helper. Which leads to our second point today. Which is that Jesus was, he not only saw this man, he not only knew this man, but he was willing to help this man. This is just, this is, this is a, a wondrous revelation of the character and the kindness and the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like the man who came to Jesus saying, Lord, if you want, you can heal me, right? You, you can heal me. You have the power to heal me. Or if you can heal me is what he says. And Jesus turns back and says, if I can. All things are possible to the one who believes. Jesus is not without the power. The question for us oftentimes is whether or not he's willing. And here Jesus makes clear, very clear that he is willing. Very, very willing. So second point, Jesus was willing to help this man. This is verses 6 through 8. Now notice how Jesus begins to help this man. He begins, first of all, by asking this man a question. In verse 6, Jesus says to him, Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Now, 
Now, is that a real question? Was Jesus serious when he asked this guy, hey, do you want to be well? Isn't it obvious that this man wants to be well? Why else would he be sitting by a pool waiting for this mysterious stirring of the waters so that he might be made well? And as a matter of fact, why would he continue waiting there in light of his own statement where he says, when the waters are stirred, I can't actually get myself down into the waters before someone else jumps ahead of me. Interesting. This man has been sitting here by this pool for a long time, waiting day in and day out for the stirring of the water in hopes that he just might be able somehow to get down into the waters first before anyone else. Of course, this man wants to be healed. So why does Jesus start his interaction with this man by asking that question? Well, one thing we know is that Jesus didn't ask this question because he didn't truly know whether or not this man wanted to be saved or wanted to be healed. John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, right? Jesus knows the hearts of all men. He needs no one to testify to him about anyone because he knows the hearts of all people. Jesus knew whether or not this man truly wanted to be healed. He knew how deeply this man longed for healing. So it wasn't, he wasn't asking this question because he was ignorant. It seems that Jesus asked this man this question for the same reason that God asks any of us a question. It's not so that God can learn something about us, but so that God can teach us something about ourselves. God does not ask questions of human beings so that God can somehow gain some knowledge that he didn't already have. He approaches us with questions so that he can teach us something about ourselves. I think A.W. Pink answered this question of why Jesus begins his conversation with this man this way. He answered that well. He says... Does it seem strange that such a question should be put to that sufferer? Was not the very fact that he was lying there by the pool an indication of what he wished? Why then ask him, wilt thou be made whole? Or do you want to be made well? Pink says, did not the Savior ask the question to impress upon this man the utter helplessness of his condition? That's why he asked him this question. To impress upon this man the utter helplessness of his condition. It's a miserable thing to want something to be done that you don't have the power to do. Anyone who has watched your child suffering know exactly what I mean. It's unnerving. It's it's almost undoing. It's our undoing to watch someone suffer, and we have no control, no power to do anything about it. Longing for things to be made right. How many of you want our government to function the way our government should? Right? 
We have this longing for justice and righteousness to prevail in our lands. But what we're finding over and over again is that we lack the power to see it brought to pass. Well, so it was with this man. He had a longing, but he had not the power to fulfill his desires. And Jesus, by asking him this question, is bringing that reality to the surface. Where it's not buried under more under excuses. It's not buried under more under this, uh, this, this prevailing notion that everything's just hopeless and there's nothing that can be done to fix my circumstance. Jesus comes to him not saying, how do you think you're going to be made well? He doesn't come to him saying, what do you want me to do for you? He comes to this man simply asking, do you want to be made well? It's like when God asked Adam in the garden, where are you, Adam? Or have you eaten of the tree from which I told you not to eat? Did God really need to ask those questions to know the answers? Of course he didn't. No, his questions were functioning like a magnifying glass to bring the new reality of Adam's fallen condition into sharp focus. To make Adam see with penetrating clarity the reality of what he had done. That's why Jesus is asking this man this question. To let him see the penetra- in a penetrating way the reality of his helplessness. In his miserable state. You know, that's where grace actually begins to do its work in our hearts. I don't know if you knew that. Every time Jesus Christ comes to minister grace to a needy soul, he begins by exposing and magnifying that person's need. No one will long for a Savior until they are thoroughly convinced that they need a Savior, right? No one's going to want to be saved until that person recognizes the reality that they need to be saved. And there's nothing they can do to change that. This is part of what was so grieving for me down in Texas last week. The, uh, the spiritual diet in Texas is a lot like what I grew up in in Tennessee, grew up under in Tennessee. It's, 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 you know, everyone believes in God's love and grace, but that kind of grace is nothing more than a peanut butter grace. You know, it's, it's real thick and it's super cheap. Real thick and super cheap. Just covers everything. Just grace, grace, grace. God's just gracious. God, God's just wonderful. He just loves us all. It doesn't matter that I'm out partying. It doesn't matter that I just seduced some woman last night. It doesn't matter that I was out drinking. God's gracious. He loves me. Now, that kind of prideful, arrogant heart is only manifesting the reality that God has not yet drawn near to that person to save that person. Because when God moves and draws near to a person with true and powerful, effectual grace, he will always start the process by bringing that person to the point of brokenness. Right? Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have what? A broken heart. The Lord saves and heals. He delivers those who have a crushed spirit. 
When the Lord wants to move to save someone and to administer grace to that person's life, He begins, first of all, by bringing that person to the point of despair. Despairing of any hope in himself or herself. Despairing of any thought that they have something to offer back to God. No, God will bottom out the well. He will make the barrel empty and bring you to the point of nothing. So that then He will administer the fullness of His grace to your heart. It's not until a person is humbled before the Lord that he or she will come to know the grace of God in truth. Right? Isn't that what we learned? The Lord is opposed to the what? He's opposed to the proud. He sets His face against them. He fights. He wages war against the proud. But He gives grace to the humble, the broken, and the contrite. To quote from A.W. Pink again, A.W. Pink went on to say, or write, Man must be brought to recognize and realize his impotency, his powerlessness, his inability to affect the change that he needs. Man must be brought to the point of recognizing and realizing his impotency. It is not till we learn we are impotent that we shall look outside of ourselves to another. It's not until you've been brought to the point where you realize you have nothing to offer God that you will begin looking outside of yourself for the help that you need. You know, often, believer, we can fall into a trap when it comes to the Lord's work of exposing sin in our lives. And I just want to spring that trap ahead of, ahead of you. And hopefully you don't, you, don't, you don't fall into it. Often we can think of the recognition of our deep neediness as, as somehow being a reason why God does not love us or will not receive us. As if all of a sudden we see how bad we are and we start to think, God's not going to accept me now. God wouldn't have me now the way I am in all of my, all of my uh, infirmity, all my depravity, all of my sinfulness. I see my sinfulness more clearly now than I ever have in my spiritual life. And I'm more tempted now at this moment to doubt the goodness of God towards me because of it. We can fall into that trap. We can think that God does not love us or God will not receive us when we begin to see more and more of the effects of sin and the radical, uh, the radical impact that sin has had upon us. We feel our shame and we feel our brokenness and our unworthiness and somehow we can fall into the trap of thinking that that will exclude us from God's grace or keep us from receiving God's favor. But dear brother and dear sister, what you need to understand is that reality is precisely the opposite. The only reason that any of us come to see our brokenness and the depth of our spiritual impoverishment and neediness is because the Lord has drawn near to us and shown it to us. You're not, you're not with me. You don't see that, do you? 
The only reason we even see how broken and depraved and sinful and wretched and undeserving and unworthy we are is because God in grace has come to show us that truth. What that means is, when you see how wretched you truly are, God has a purpose of grace to save you and deliver you from what you see of yourself. You only recognize your spiritual helplessness and your inability when God has purposed to draw you near to himself. See, recognizing your lack and your unworthiness, recognizing uh, your utter humility and humiliation before God is not a hindrance to being received into his gracious arms. That is actually the starting point of receiving grace from his hand. Right? This is what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Who are the blessed to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven? It's those who are poor in spirit. In other words, it's, it's those who have nothing to offer back to God and who feel the barrenness and the emptiness of their own souls. Those who are impoverished in spirit and those who recognize that they are impoverished in spirit, Jesus looks at them and says, it's the Father's good pleasure for you to have the kingdom. But Lord, I have nothing to offer for it. I can't give you, I can't give you back anything. I'm not good. I'm sinful. I see all the things I've done in my life. Jesus says, yeah, I know that. That's why you're qualified to receive the kingdom of heaven because you know it didn't come from you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not woe to them, but blessed, blessed are they. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to wrap this up here. It's interesting that this man does not directly answer Jesus' question. In John chapter 5, when Jesus says, <clears throat> Do you want to be made well? Is that your desire? In verse 7, the man responds not by answering his question, but by giving an excuse for why he hasn't been healed yet. Verse 7, the man answered and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, clearly, did he answer Jesus' question? Do you want to be healed? Sir, I don't have anybody to throw me into the water. That's literally what that word means, by the way, put me in the water. It, it's a word that means throw to cast, to hurl him into the water. I don't have anybody even to throw me in there. In other words, the man responded basically by saying, Sir, desire is not the issue. The problem is that I do not have the ability. And not only do I not have the ability, I don't have anyone else to help me in my inability. I have the desire to be healed. What I don't have is someone who desires or who is willing to help me be healed. So this man has been utterly abandoned by anyone who would have been able to help him. And that exposes the depth of his neediness. He couldn't help himself, and there was no one else around him who was willing to help him either. 
What greater opportunity could there be for Jesus to magnify himself as a friend of sinners and a help for the needy than this situation right here? As the heaven-sent helper for the despised and the rejected and and the needy, into the midst of this man's helpless condition and situation, Jesus steps forward to become his helper. And far beyond what this man might have been expecting or asking for, Jesus came to do more than just throw him into the water the next time they were stirred. Jesus came to actually heal the man of his problem. He didn't come to throw him down into the water. He came to raise him up by his power. You see the contrast. Other people were able to push this man into the water. Jesus came not to push him down. He came to lift him up. And here's the most important part of this contrast between what Jesus can offer this man and what everyone else could have offered this man. And you got to get this. The most important contrast here is that Jesus was not only able to help this man, Jesus was willing to help this man. Everyone else was able to push him into the water, but nobody was willing. Jesus is not only able to do far more abundantly and beyond anything he could have asked or imagined, but he's willing to do it. Now don't miss that about Jesus. Jesus steps in to help this man when no one else would. You know, we have this dangerous tendency to interpret God's posture and disposition towards us in light of the way that everyone else treats us. So you hear this psychologizing about how people view God as father. Well, what was your father like? He treated you poorly? Oh, yeah, that's why you don't trust in God as your father. You think he's going to treat you poorly because, because your earthly father treated you poorly. You can't connect the dots. I don't agree with that psychologizing, by the way. I don't think it's appropriate. We have this tendency to interpret God's dealings or to envision God's posture and disposition towards us in the light of the way other people treat us. And we can even see that in this this man's response back to Jesus. Uh, D.A. Carson, I think, is the one who pointed out that the language here kind of reflects like a crotchety old man. Like, get off my lawn type guy. You know, like, do you want to be healed? Well, I would be healed if there was somebody who'd throw me in the water. Are you going to be that guy? There's this crotchetiness to his response, almost an irritation. As if he's interpreting Jesus' question in light of the way he'd been treated by everyone else. You know, over and over again... God declares and promises to us in his word that we are not to think of him as if he were just like everybody else. As if he looks at us and will treat us the way everyone else does. God is not like men and his dealings with us are never to be judged according to the norms of men. So just take Isaiah 55, 7-9 as an example. Even when sinners have wronged the Lord... 
even when they have transgressed grievously against his law, even when they have sinned and rejected and offended him, even at their worst stages and manifestations of rebellion and anarchy and depravity, even then God's disposition towards sinners is one of mercy. Even then, God's disposition is one of kindness and compassion and grace, of slowness to anger and of steadfastness of love. To those who have sinned against Him with the worst forms of depravity, here in Isaiah 55, God continues to reach out to them with hands of mercy, saying, let the wicked forsake His way and let the unrighteous His thoughts. Let them return to the Lord. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and the Lord our God will abundantly pardon them. Why? Why can they hope and expect and anticipate that regardless of all the sinfulness, all the depraved things that they have done, what, why can they expect that if they turn from those things, God will receive them? Because the Lord says right here, because my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's not us, guys. You get slighted by somebody. Someone treats you wrongly. How are you tempted to respond? Friend, don't do that. Don't treat me that way. Come on. There's no reason for us to fight. Turn, turn from your anger towards me and come. I, I'm merciful. I, I'm, I get it. I'm gracious. Let's, let's, let's be friends. Let's reconcile. Is that how we're tempted to respond when someone treats us wrongly? No, because that's not the way fallen humanity naturally responds when they're offended. We are selfish, self-centered creatures that worship nothing more than we worship ourselves. And there is no greater transgression in this world for a depraved, lost, unbelieving human being than to have someone transgress the bounds of their own personal holiness. Not holiness in a good way, but their own sanctity. That they ought to be as revered in other people's eyes as they are in their own. You know, God's not like that. And we're not to interpret God like that. The Lord says, in the worst forms of your sinfulness, if you will but let it go and turn to me, I will be merciful to you and I will abundantly pardon. Because I'm not like you. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Romans 5.8, it tells us that while we were still sinners, God chose to demonstrate His love for us in a very specific way. He chose to demonstrate the depth of His love by giving up His precious, holy, only begotten Son to die in our place. Now, as we so often quote, what that means is, in the words of Romans 8.32, that He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We have no need to doubt the kindness and the love of God towards us. No matter what 
sins are in our past. All we have to do is but recognize our need and turn to the Lord as our helper because he is a helper for the needy. If we don't get anything else from this interaction between Jesus and this man at this point, we need to take away the fact that Jesus is the help of the needy. With that, let's pray. Lord, you are our only help, our only good. You are our fortress in times of trouble. You are our rock and our defense, our hiding place, our refuge. From where does our help come? Lord, we, we boldly confess our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I thank you, Lord, you have not left us lying by this uh, cesspool of depravity, thinking that somehow the answer to our problems can be found in the stirring of those waters. Lord, you've come and you have spoken grace to us. You've asked us if we want to be healed. And you have healed us by your great and mighty power. Those of us who know you, Lord, know that to be true. Lord, if there are those in this room who do not know you yet, who still take pleasure in unrighteousness and sin, who have not yet recognized the depth of their need, Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes to see Christ. That you would penetrate the, uh, through the shell and the rock of their heart. And break it into pieces. Shatter them, Lord. Break them before you. Give them a broken and contrite heart. And heal them in the name of Jesus Christ. May they repent of sin. May they come to you in faith. And receive the grace you've given us in our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray you'd be with us. Apply this word in every way we need it applied. We ask this grace in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.